seat. Good morning. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Chris Luke. I'm one of the pastors around here. Uh, I think Andrew said I teach the 20s and 30s class first hour. In fact, quite a few are in here today from our class. So if someone's in the seat you normally sit in, it's my fault because I invited them. Uh, I'm really glad to be with you today. Jim is a great friend of mine. Uh, it's really an honor to teach in his stead. And um, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Hey, I wanted to announce this. There are some of these on the back table. It is 30 Days of Prayer for the Muslim World, put out by Voice of the Martyrs. If you've heard of that organization, we mentioned it in the panel Wednesday night. Uh, basically, Ramadan starts Thursday. I believe it's Thursday. And this is a guide to pray for Muslims through Ramadan. Um, you know, there is a large gospel movement in the Muslim world, and we want to pray for more. Uh, this is a guide to that end. So pick one up on your way out. Um, let's pray and we'll get going. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you, Lord, that we can always come before you. Lord Jesus, that you have uh, opened the door into the throne room of grace and there's always grace in our time of need. So I pray now that you would pour out your grace. Uh, fill me, fill us all with your Holy Spirit that we might better listen to you and know you, that we might better know your love for us, that we might better love you and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to First Chronicles 21. If you can't remember where First Chronicles is, that's okay. It's about a third of the way through the Bible after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. As you're getting there, I'll give you a little bit of context. David was just recently anointed king over Israel. The first order of business was to take Jerusalem, where he would set up home base. Uh, the next order of business was to go get the Ark of the Covenant. The ark was that symbol of God's presence. Even, even more than that, uh, it was the actual location of God's presence with his people on earth. It had been neglected during Saul's reign and it was placed in an out-of-the-way village, but God's presence and rule would be central to David's rule over the kingdom of Israel. So they go get the ark, they bring it to Jerusalem, and they worship. Such was the beginning of the rule of King David. Next, in 1 Chronicles 17, God made a covenant with David. Uh, this covenant is huge in the larger narrative of the scriptures in terms of understanding Jesus, uh, but for today's purposes, the only thing you need to know about that covenant with David was that a part of it was uh, God said that David's son Solomon would build the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would then be placed permanently in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Um, however, it's important to note for where we are getting to our text that David still did not know where the temple would go. He knew he wouldn't be the one to build it. He knew his son would be the one to build it, but he did not know where it would be built. After God's covenant with David, the uh, next couple chapters, we see that David and the army of Israel enjoyed great military success, conquering neighboring enemy nations. But then we come to 1 Chronicles 21 and we see that there is an enemy, the enemy who has his way with David. 
or so it seems. So I'll read uh, all of chapter 21 through to the first verse in chapter 22. I know that's a lot. So follow as I read whatever is easiest for you to follow, whether that be along with me in your Bible or, you know, slapping yourself and just paying attention however you can. I'll read chapter 21. This is the word of God. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord, the King, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant for I, I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go on and go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. Remember, David the king. And David said to Ornan, give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it the altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. 
See, I have the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and put his, to put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. He couldn't get to him. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. Amen. So uh, there's a lot in here. We could draw many lessons from this chapter, but I want to focus on one main idea today, and it is this. God uses evil to advance his purposes of salvation. You'll hear me say that many times. Uh, Hey, by the way, we normally do question and answer at the end of my class or someone throws out a thought that they think complements what was said. I'm kind of in the question and answer mood because of the summer panel series. So all to say, do the same thing today. If there's time, if you have a question or a thought as we wrap up, uh, feel free and there should be a little bit of time at the end. All right, God uses evil to advance his purposes of salvation. I want you to think about the progression of this chapter. The first thing we see is Satan urging David to take a census. Now, not exactly clear on why this was a sin, but it becomes clear that Satan is indeed urging David to sin against God. I mean, what else would Satan urge someone to do? But Joab saw that this was a sin uh, and tried to discourage David from taking the census. David didn't listen to Joab. He should have listened to Joab. So David followed Satan's instruction. He sinned against God and God was displeased. David comes to understand that he had sinned against God and he casts himself on the Lord because he knows that God has great mercy. Even so, there was great consequence to Israel because of King David's sin. 70,000 men died. Because of this, David is further grieved by his sin. He, He saw the destruction that his sin had caused. He knew it could get worse. So again, he cried out to the Lord, pleading that God would no longer hold his sin against uh, his people. In response to this prayer, the angel of the Lord directed David to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite to sacrifice to God. But not only is Ornan's threshing floor the place where God, uh, where David offered sacrifice for his sin, Chapter 22, verse 1 tells us that upon offering sacrifice for his sin, King David now knows where the temple will be built. Right there on Ornan's threshing floor. So the rest of 1 Chronicles is about David making preparation for building the temple. And Solomon began to build the temple in 2 Chronicles 3. Don't turn there, but listen as I read 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. 
So Satan led King David into sin and there was great consequence for David's sin, but God uses evil to advance his purposes of salvation. Satan's deception and David's sin did not derail God's plan. In fact, they fit perfectly into God's plan. David repented. And in his repentance, God led him to Ornan's threshing floor to offer sacrifice, but that's not the only thing God was doing in leading him to Ornan's threshing floor. That's where the temple would be built. The temple, where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed. The temple that would become the central meeting place of God with his people for generation after generation to come. The temple with all of the offerings and sacrifices, with the high priest who would go into the presence of God on the day of atonement to make sacrifice for God's people. The temple, which is that great foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who made full and final sacrifice for the sin of God's people. Satan came and led David to sin against God. There was great consequence for his sin, but God uses evil to advance his purposes. God used Satan and God used David's sin to advance his purposes of salvation for his people. There may be no greater foreshadowing of salvation in Christ than the Old Testament temple. And again, God used Satan's deception and David's sin to lead him to the place where the temple would be built. God is a God of paradox. I want you to think about these paradoxes in the Christian life. Um, Jesus tells us that we must lose our lives in order to find them. He also tells us that we must die to ourselves in order to truly live. Today we're seeing another one of these great paradoxes. God uses evil to advance his good purposes of salvation. The greatest example of this is the paradox of the cross. The greatest evil in the history of the world was the murder of God at the hands of sinful men. So viewing it from one angle, the greatest evil in the history of the world was the death of Christ. Yet, in the hands of God, that greatest evil has been used for the greatest good. The greatest good in the history of the world was the death of Christ for the people of God. Salvation that spans the whole world for all time. So viewing it from one angle, the greatest evil in the history of the world is the death of Christ, yet viewing it from another angle, the greatest good in the history of the world is the death of Christ. God is a God of paradox. He uses evil to advance his good purposes of salvation for his people. This has major implications for the way we view the world and not only the way we view it, but the way we live in it. You know, we look into a culture that is getting darker and darker by the day and we think all is lost. But think back to the way that the disciples must have felt on the day that Jesus was crucified. That was the darkest day and the day after but on the third day he rose. Life swallowed up death. The sun came up. The light shines in the darkness and there's not a thing that the darkness can do about it. Now, 
Let me be clear, we live in a perverse culture. Many of the things that are accepted as normal are simply wretched. Some of the things that are accepted as normal in the church are wretched. But I take great comfort in knowing that God uses evil to accomplish his good purposes of salvation. We serve the God of the resurrection. He can't be stopped. That doesn't mean we should keep tolerating sin. We should do like David, plead for mercy and walk in repentance. And we, we know there will be consequences for our sin, but where mercy is pleaded for, it's always granted. I mean, we see that mercy was granted in this story of King David. Not only was he allowed to make sacrifice for his sin, but he's also led to the place where the temple would be built. And what is the temple about, if not God's grace and mercy? And of course, we know that the fulfillment of the temple comes in Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of God's grace and mercy to us. So when we find ourselves disoriented by the cobwebs of sin and evil, if it's our sin, we should repent and trust God no matter what consequences there will be. If it's those around us, if it's the culture at large, we should remember and trust God that he uses evil to advance his purposes. So I wanna work through a few applications of this. Um, I've got ISIS on the brain because that was a topic of our panel this past Wednesday night. Uh, and as I said Wednesday night, ISIS is evil. I want them to be stopped. They're a servant of Satan. And yet, we have to remember that God uses Satan to serve his ultimate purpose, purposes of salvation for his people. ISIS is evil and they will be used by God to advance his ultimate good purposes of salvation. That doesn't mean he approves of what they're doing. He didn't approve of what David did. They are completely responsible before God for what they're doing. But again, God uses even the greatest evil, Satan, to advance his good purposes. Think about the early church in the book of Acts. They were heavily persecuted, many to the point of death. And what happened? Acts 9, 31 says, the church had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They didn't have peace because they were, things were peaceful. Uh, they had supernatural peace, the comfort of the Holy Spirit when everything else said they shouldn't have peace at all. And they were being built up. They were being strengthened. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of man. And the church multiplied. The church will be strengthened. The kingdom of God will ultimately prevail. God uses evil to advance his purposes of salvation. So I prayed the other night, and I think we should all pray that God would raise up another Saul, turned Paul. Paul was persecuting the church even to the point of death, when Jesus stopped him in his tracks, recreated him and made him into the greatest missionary that the church has ever known. Pray for God to stop ISIS and pray in light of what we know God does, pray that God would use them to strengthen his church and to grow his church and trust that he will. Another application of the fact that God uses sin and evil to advance his purposes of salvation. Um, some in here have blown it big time. 
and you may see the destruction of your sin all around you. You may see it beginning to spread uh, to those around you that you love. Think about King David. Think about King David realizing his sin, seeing the severe consequences on his sin, on, on those that he loved, and even realizing that the destruction could get far worse. So if that's you, be like David. Repent, receive mercy, and follow God in the path of repentance. Uh, Some are in that spot in sin like David when he knew he was in sin, and you know that to keep going is the path to destruction, but, but to repent is risky if we're honest because you know, you'll be found out and then there are consequences that you'll have to face. But listen, it's far riskier not to repent. Repent, plead for mercy, trust the Lord. Mercy will be granted because Jesus paid it all. And God uses even the worst things to advance his good purposes. Another application of God using the bad for the good, um, my friend Steve my friend Steve's sin led him to prison for a few years. Uh, And yet it was there on the day that he was arrested that he surrendered his life to Christ. It was in prison that God met him so personally and intimately, ministering his mercy and his grace to Steve each and every day. To the point where Steve would say today, someone asked him, is there anything you miss about prison? And you would think the automatic answer is no. What a dumb question. But he said, yes, intimacy with Christ. It was there that God made Steve into the godly man that he is today. It was there that God grew a deep well of knowledge and a heart to serve. God is a God of paradox. Another application, maybe you have been slandered. Maybe you've been lied about. Maybe you've been falsely represented um, to one person or to many. I was talking to a friend this week who has been lied about and falsely represented and it has caused years of agony, years in court to defend himself because of the severity of the allegations, the cost to his family, monetarily, emotionally, relationally, you lose friends, Find out who your friends really are. It has been extremely painful and the resolution has been extremely slow. However, my friend was telling me this week that this has easily been the most significant period of spiritual growth in his life and and for his wife. He was saying, you know, when everything comes unglued, when the things that you've cared about most are being tarnished, such as your name, and and your reputation, and they're being tarnished unjustly. He said, I've found my true identity in the Lord. He said, it amazes me how much Jesus loves me and truly cares about me. These are statements of great Christian maturity, and they were crafted in the fire. They were crafted by the master craftsman who controls the flame. God uses evil to advance his purposes of salvation for his people. 
This is the way God works. Jesus was slandered and lied about and tortured and beaten and ultimately murdered at the hands of sinful men. They had no right to slander him. I mean, that is the height of injustice, much less murder him. Again, the murder of God at the hands of sinful men is easily the greatest evil in the history of the world, yet God has used it to accomplish the greatest good. My salvation, your salvation, the salvation of our brothers and sisters all over the world for all time, so many people that Revelation 7 says we can't count that high. A couple dangers to avoid in talking about this. Uh, The first one is asking why. Now, let me say about that. It's not that God can't handle your questions, um, but he's usually not going to tell us why. And he's usually going to use hard things in many more ways that we could ever comprehend. Uh, And so it's not just such a simple answer as to why. And getting stuck on why distracts us from where our focus has to be in order to move forward in a godly way, which is to focus on the who, on God, who is good, who who even works the worst things to advance his good purposes of salvation. Another danger on the flip side is thinking we know why well, I, this is the reason why God has done this. I, I just know, you know, I see, I think this is why. Um, and again, we have to focus on the who. The call is to trust God because of who he is. He is God. He is good. And we trust that he will work all things for our glory, for his glory and for our good. Even the worst things. Even Satan, in all of his wickedness, even our sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is not the way we tend to think. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally restructure our thinking according to your word. I pray that you would supernaturally bring comfort to your hurting people, whether hurt by their own sin or hurt by the sin of others. Lord, trusting, even though it's confusing and disorienting, that you are a master at working even the worst things for our ultimate good. Lord, in light of that, I pray for ISIS, who even today will continue to behead our brothers and sisters across the globe. Lord, I pray that you would stop them. I pray that you would have mercy on them. We too were once enemies of God. You've brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And I pray that you would do the same for them. But Lord, if that is not your will, I pray that you would stop them, whatever it takes. We pray that you would bring that supernatural peace and comfort to our brothers and sisters who are scared for their lives today. And and we pray, Lord, in light of what we see to be true in your word, that you would use them to advance your good purposes of salvation for those nations where they're wreaking havoc. 
Strengthen your bride, Lord Jesus. Make her more beautiful, even over here, as we watch in fear of uh, the evil that is on display in the world. Lord, I do pray that you would pour out your spirit to help us, to comfort, to convict, to strengthen, to encourage, to lead us in your paths. And we do pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we have a couple few minutes for uh, a question, if anyone has a question or two. I'm not clear on that. Gotcha. Yeah, I was, thank you. I was searching for it too and couldn't find it. All I could see was, uh, yeah, okay. Most, gotcha. Thank you for teaching me. Um, you know, all I, all I could see was I, it was very clear that it was a sin and I couldn't, I didn't, thank you for that. <clears throat> Anyone else? I have one other, uh, application for those whose children are rebelling or um, looking like they're going to rebel, not interested in the things of God, and even some um, angry at the things of God. You know, I think about my parents often in that because my brother and I were in the same spot for years, and uh, there were many years where they weren't sure that we would live the next day, much less ever turn back to the Lord. I've had many people tell me, if ever someone was too far gone, I thought you were. Um, But as I look back now with new eyes and see the way that God governed every single thing, every bit of evil that I was up to, every bit of evil that I was wrapped up in, it was all part of him navigating to where he's led me today. My brother's well. Um, in the moment, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, when my parents were thinking their marriage wouldn't survive the, the struggle, um, when, when they were wondering if we're gonna make it through the night, when, when they're, you know, bailing us out of jail and paying for us to have to get certain types of counseling and take different kinds of medication because we're just at a breaking point. I think they were in the fog. I think it's disorienting and confusing, but what our passage today offers us, and you know, as we see it here, I, I thought it was wonderful to see it in an obscure place that I didn't know it was there. I mean, we, we know this theme is there throughout the scriptures, just to hope in and take comfort in the God who not only knows how to, but indeed does and will work all of these things um, to advance his good purposes of salvation. So, any more questions? If not, we're about out of time. Clint. 
Well, and what's the passage in Hebrews? It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, I think David had a sense of that as well. And yet he thought, but that's where I have to go. I mean, because he is the God of all mercy and uh, help and hope and comfort and strength. And so that's, that is the dilemma though in repentance is the owning of sin for repentance often not only is like embarrassing and will expose you, but we know that that path is going to have consequence. And that doesn't mean punishment. We know that our punishment was ultimately fully dealt on Jesus, but there is still great consequence for sin, some more than others. And uh, I think that if we were to look into that more, I think that tension is one that we often feel is there is, it's risky to repent. Again, it's riskier not to. That's a good one to end on. It is 1030. Thank you for having me. Have a good day.